It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. I wake up and cry. My aching heart is uttering, why? Why did they do this to us? I cannot stop the tears. They keep running down my face, for the pain in my heart remains. Mary Lichtenstein, 1980. Powerful words. Powerful words that can apply to so much that's discussed on Get Real with Robin, which is why I, your humble co-host, Kirk Nurmi, always appreciate the opportunity to work with the great Robin Cote. So, Robin, thank you once again for allowing me to share this space with you. Uh, you know, I'm sitting over here just after you reading that. I've already got tears in my eyes and just goosebumps, absolute goosebumps. I mean, that, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, Robin, I, I, I remember when I thought about this broadcast in particular, I thought about the first day we talked about the show, sitting in the coffee shop, and you telling me how you wanted to 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 really have conversations, those difficult conversations. And, you know, I feel like that this is one of those days that we're going to have one of those difficult conversations. Uh, you know, so much of what we talk about on this show does deal with the, the horrible ways uh, that people can treat each other, the horrible things that humans can do to each other. And I think that takes a whole new level when we realize that Mary Lichtenstein, the, the author of these words, uh, is a Holocaust survivor. I can't and even imagine. one that I've come to know with, through the work of a, of a former colleague who is the granddaughter of Miss Lichtenstein, and uh, a former colleague, as I said, and a, and a current friend, Adina Ostrowski. Adina, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Kirk and, and Robin. And thank you for sharing everything that you share in your book, because I think it's an important reminder, um, not only of the atrocities that have been committed in the past, but, but can still be committed. So um, I want to start out really just because so many of us, maybe when we're younger, don't pay much attention to our elders, and they, they're kind of dismissed, right, of old thinking and that sort of thing, and you just... You did the opposite. Um, you embraced everything about your grandmother. And so I want to talk about what motivated you first to, to embrace what she had to offer you, and then why you decided to share those things with the world. Sure. Well, I don't think I'm as honorable as you're painting me out to be because I think like most um, others, most teenagers, I dismissed my elders easily. Um, I think it's just a matter of being a teenager, being busy with my own life, my own friends, school, and so forth. And even as a young adult, I knew it was very important for me to know and understand my grandmother. She made it a point to tell us over and over, know your roots. Know your roots. You don't know what you're missing if you don't ask and you don't know what, what our story is about. But it really wasn't until probably, probably the last eight to ten years, and it really has to do with my kids. 
I started to see this whole fourth generation of Holocaust descendants growing up. And just knowing that if I didn't do something about memorializing the history and the facts um, that in terms of what my grandmother went through and her community, that it would get lost because she was getting older. And uh, she ended up passing away uh, just a month after an earlier version of this book came out. So I knew that time was of the essence, and I knew that once she passed away, there would be no opportunity to ask her to fill in certain blanks. Um, so that was really the impetus in why I wrote the book. Um, I forgot your second question already because well, I was the, focused on the first. Sorry. Well, no, I think, I think you answered them both <clears throat> together. You wanted to share that with a new generation. Um, and how, how do you feel like you talked about your own kids? Um, you talk a lot about these issues. How do you feel that that has been received? For the most part, I think very well. I get a lot of messages from people all over the world. I am really quite surprised by where my book has landed um, in terms of countries that I've never been to and may never get to and um, countries closer that I have been to. But I hear from people, all different kinds of people. Um, some of them have gone through similar genocides. Their family has, not the Holocaust, but a different type of genocide. And so they are able to relate very well. Um, it's, so I, I think it's been well received. I know that at least the people that reach out to me and the reviews that are left are generally positive, but there are a lot of haters out there, yeah. no matter what, what the issue is. And so from time to time, I will get some kind of negative review or I'll get an email that's, that's negative or somebody will lash out. Um, but you have to just remember um, they're probably not coming from the similar place that I'm coming from, and so you have to just keep that in perspective. Why is it such an issue for people to talk about genocide? Why are we so, why are we so worried about that subject? Why can't people just talk about that's part of our history? I, I don't know if I know the answers to your question. I think that it's just a very uncomfortable topic. I think that. If, if you don't have some type of con connection, a personal connection, you don't really know how to respond. Um, also, it hasn't been mandated until, well, yesterday, the, um, the House bill was approved by the Senate. And now there's, um, well, the governor still needs to sign it, but soon we'll have the law um, that it ha will have to be taught. It'll be mandated in the schools twice between seventh grade and 12th grade. I'm very proud that the, um, the House bill was passed yesterday. But... Um, why, is it un why is it not talked about? Well, first of all, with regards to the Holocaust, it happened so long ago. It just feels like a completely different, multiple generation previous to us. And so I just think that uh, it's, it's very hard to relate to. And um, there's a lot of deniers out there. And even the teachers that teach it in the school, a lot of them don't know what they're teaching. Um, they allow for conversations that should not take place, like, did the Holocaust happen? We know it happened. It's a given. So you can't start with, did it? So um, I think people tend to shy away from things that make them uncomfortable, no matter what the topic. But in this case, I think um, it's, it's a very uncomfortable. 11 million people dying is a lot of people. It's hard to wrap your head around it. Um, so I, I, I think that's part of it. I would agree with you, because even if you go back to something like 9-11, um, a lot of people have forgotten about it. 
and there was what 3,000 people that died that day, but people continue to die because of working down there with all of that stuff. So, I mean, the whole idea that this is something that actually happened, and I remember growing up and seeing pictures in our history class with these massive graves. You know, even watching Schindler's List as an adult, that scared the hell out of me. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm not from that background. I've never walked in those shoes, but my God, what those people went through. I mean, I just can't even imagine the stories that your grandmother, is it Bubby? Yeah, my grandmother. That's the Yiddish word for grandmother. I I can't even imagine the life that she had had lived through. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about this until you just said, you just spoke a second ago, but um, growing up, I really never watched any movies having to do with the Holocaust. Um, I internalized it so much that I, um, it, it, I, I, would, I couldn't sleep. I would obsess over some of the images. Um, I remember Schindler's List and other movies, I, closing my eyes or leaving the theater. It was just too personal. And um, I know that my grandmother certainly shared her story in detail, in details, but I, I'm sure she also left off some details and it always made me wonder what what were those instances that she was not comfortable sharing with us and um, this is a a happier sort of detail but when I was doing the research for my book um, I got in touch with Yad Vashem the Holocaust Museum in Israel and um, they provided some information for me and in an email I actually got from them was the name of a woman who was a childhood friend of my grandmother's. And um, her name's Genia, and she lives in Israel now. I wasn't able to communicate with her directly because she speaks two languages that I don't speak, and she doesn't speak English. But as big as this world is, it's still very small at times. And it turned out that a college friend of mine from ASU was living in Israel and spoke Hebrew, and she was willing to go to Genia's apartment or her house and speak to her. and. She shared a story with me that I, I won't share publicly because my grandmother never told it to anybody, and um, I had a discussion with my mom about it. But it was, it, it made me really wonder what what other little pieces of information my grandmother withheld because she didn't want to hurt us any more than the hurt and pain that you feel from learning some of these stories. I mean, what the survivors and what those that were murdered went through. Um, it's really hard to wrap your head around it. You know, I had a show host earlier that I had this discussion with about this topic that we were going to be talking about, and he told me a story about this young man, and the one kid was behind the fence. The other kid, was his best friend, was not Jewish. He was on the other side of the fence, but he wanted to play. That was his best friend that got taken away, and they actually put him behind the fence with his best friend and he died with his best friend because he felt that was the best place for him to be with his best friend. He didn't want to leave. And they were both like 12 or 13 years old when this happened. And that kind of stuff, I can't even imagine, you know, having to watch your friends die, watch your loved ones die. But for a child, I mean, my goodness, that just, it just rips at my very core as a human being to even think about my best friend on that other side, and I'm going to go die with my best friend because I don't want to leave him there and abandon him. I mean, that just, that rips at my very core. Yeah, it's very, it's very, very tough. I, my grandmother always, you know, she would say, um, 
And I, it's in my book, I'm sure, somewhere, how she felt that her family were the lucky ones, the ones that died. Um, it's it's, it's um, very hard to live your life with this pain, you know, wondering, why me? Why did I survive? And my grandmother was very lucky. Um, you know, I start off the book talking about how she always said it was fate. And I've had a chance to really think about that a lot the last year or two, and I don't think it was just fate. I, I certainly think there were things like luck on her side. I think she was able to make a good decision and, you know, a blink of an eye that happened to save, help save her. Um, she had some people looking out for her that was very, very fortunate. But she was also very resourceful at 17 years old. And I have two 17-year-olds right now, and I look at them and I think, if they didn't have their cell phones, could they get around? I mean, could they actually get even just around our, our city, our town? Um, and certainly things were different back then. They weren't as sophisticated and complex. But I look at them at 17, and I constantly think, since they turned 17 in January, I've been thinking, you are the age that my grandmother was when her entire world was turned upside down. How different would things be for you if everyone else just vanished, you know, in a, in a heartbeat? And that's really what happened to my grandmother. Um, you know, she ended up, as you know, she, she ended up having to learn six languages as a refugee, not because she had to take them in school like we did, not because she went on a vacation and needed to learn some basic language, you know, foreign language, but she had to learn six languages to survive, to work, to raise her family, to speak to the neighbors, to purchase groceries at the grocery store. And she learned them so well. She, she wrote them. She wrote in those languages. She spoke in those languages. Um, she, she really was a remarkable person. And I took French in high school, and I'm so glad I passed because I, I couldn't say a word now, but it's not easy. My brain does not, it does not uh, you know, capture foreign languages easily. But I look at my grandmother, who was a very simple person. She was the only person I ha that I had only one phone number for in my, in my phone. One phone number. No pager at the time, no fax number at the time, right? But not multiple phone numbers for home, for work, for cell, and all of that. Very simple, but so smart, um, so resourceful, and um, just, thank God, did the right thing at the right time. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Yeah, you know, one of the things that comes to mind, and, and, and I can't ask you to, it wouldn't be fair to me, I don't think, to ask you to just, do a, do a dialogue on hate necessarily, but because it's such a amorphous kind of topic. But, you know, you mentioned the changing world and the evolving world and the technology and the different things, right? And the, and the struggles, the, what we would call struggles are, are nothing compared to what your grandmother went through. But as much as the world has evolved, the concept of hate hasn't gone away. And I know from knowing you a little bit, outside this podcast, that that's an important mission with this book as well. Um, could you speak to kind of the, the anti-Semitism that you see now in this, in this world, some of it you get, maybe some of those reactions that you talked about earlier in this book, and, and how you believe your grandmother's story helps kind of serve, serve that end and serve to curtail hate a little bit? Sure. 
Anti-Semitism is certainly at an all-time high. It's if you just Google it, you'll see the research, you'll see the stats. Um, the ADL is all all over this with incidents all the time. Just earlier this week, I believe it was, there was a Jewish cemetery in Poland that was just desecrated. Um, it, it brought tears to my eyes that that is happening, um, and that and and here in America, it's, it's awful. Um, you, you have to be aware of it. You, can, you can't you know, walk around with your head in the sand. You have to know what's happening, and you have to be smart. I have two of my kids are leaving for Israel on Monday, and I've had a lot of people, well, certainly it's better now that they're not in an you know, active war, but even when I went there in 1988, <laughs> it was the same situation. Um, but it's almost safer there. It's almost safer there, I feel, at times than it is here. Um, and I, I certainly have concerns, and I have to be aware of them and alert as my 17-year-olds are going to get ready for college applications soon. I look at universities, and I look at are they being proactive or reactive when they have incidents of anti-Semitism, but also incidents of hate, um, because I don't want them to be on a college campus that is just completely reactionary. I'm hoping that it serves to help explain one person's story. I think it's very hard for people to try to understand a concept that they otherwise would have no reference to um, without a story. It just really helps. And I think that it's fortunate that my grandmother was 17 at the time when things began, and then obviously the story progresses and she gets older because most, most kids under 15, well, it was just right in high school, most kids under seventh grade, really, because it's, it's on the curriculum for some of the school districts, um, it's too hard to relate to, and you, you can't discuss the Holocaust with kids really under fifth or sixth grade. But the idea is that there's enough in my book, whether it's the poetry from my grandmother or it's my voice coming through as a mother of teenagers and a granddaughter, or it's my grandmother's story, you know, being a teenager and a young adult. I'm hoping that it will resonate in, in some way so that if you're interested, you, you do some more reading, you do some more research, you're aware. Um, and it's, again, it's not just about anti-Semitism and Jewish people. It's the whole concept of being an upstander, not a bystander. And whenever I talk to, to students about that, I, I say to them, look, I'm not saying run into harm's way. If you see a fight, a bullying incident, or something at school, or someone being, um, someone being harassed or assaulted for how they look or who they are. I don't want you to go get and get hurt. Go get an adult. But the idea is that you do something. You speak up. You say something. And that's the idea of being an upstander and not just being a bystander like so many people were. When you look at the Holocaust, they just allowed things to happen. And remember, the Holocaust began with words. It didn't, it didn't just all of a sudden become 1942, right? It began with words. It was a slow progression. Um, a lot of the propaganda that was used, turning people against the Jews. Um, you have to be aware. You have to see things for what they truly are and be an independent thinker. You don't just go along with the masses because it seems cool or it's the hip thing to do. Um, think for yourself and then act appropriately. And, and that's sort of... I, maybe the broader, bigger lesson. I don't talk about that specifically in my book, but that is certainly how I'm trying to raise my kids, and that's how um, the message that I, hoped, I hope I'm getting across when I speak to young adults. 
Well, I think what you said encapsulates a lot because I think one of the things that I keyed in on uh, what you just said was the idea of, you know, if, if you listen to the show or you listen to me talk at different points in time, I'll talk about the universality of the experience, right? I, I'm not Jewish, um, but, you know, I've, I've been bullied on social media because, because of my position as Jody Arias' lawyer, right? Other people have been bullied because of the color of their skin, their gender, their sexual orientation. The list goes on and on, right? And the point being that there is a universality of that connection, right? That the, that the person that is being coming under fire for a trait of theirs is going to probably feel the same thing. And you can correct me if you think I'm wrong. Whether is going to feel the same way, whether it's related to anti-Semitism or the color of their skin. So th that's the kind of thing that I think is so important about a, a story like this because there's that connection in the first person to feelings. It's that connection to feelings, right? Because we can talk about, you know, the amount of people who died and, and it, it, it does become like, like a, a Schindler's List or something. It becomes almost, almost too hard to comprehend, right? But we all know those feelings of being picked on, of being bullied, of being victimized, of being abused, that sort of thing. And I love what you're talking, I love that upstander, right? Is that what, yeah, I got that right. I love that because that is such an empowering um, lesson, right? To not only if you're not the person being bullied, but you've probably been bullied in, in different situations, right? And you understand, or generally, and people, I'm not saying you specifically, but people in general have generally been picked on for, you know, their clothes, their whatever it is, right? And, and that is such a powerful lesson in all of this, is this idea that we are all, you know, to me, in my mind, we're all in this together. We're all part of the same human experience, and we need to start standing up and unifying together as as individuals is as expressive beings in in the world so to me all these movements are so similar in that we're really all just seeking our own humanity right yes it's all about being part of the human race right i mean right. we're all humans we should be treated equally which is why i went to law school actually right. to, to actually handle those you know those types of cases um but we should be treated um, with dignity and equally. And when you were speaking, it reminded me of a somewhat famous quote by a very famous Holocaust survivor, Eli Wiesel. And he said, uh, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And I love that quote. I put it yeah. in my book. Um, and then I actually saw my publisher put it on her website or something. I think it resonated with her, but um, it's true. And it's it very kind profound. Of goes, and yes, I agree. Um, and it sort of goes back to the stand up and say something if you see something happening that shouldn't be happening, whether it's an, an act of bullying at a school ground or somebody being harmed for you know in a, in a different type of way. Um, but yes, that that's the whole idea. Yeah. You know, I found it interesting. I started reading your book and. Just learning about Bubby and learning about some of the things that she did, 
But the thing that really resonated with me that kind of, I, I felt so bad about this that she felt like she always had to look over her shoulder because she was always worried that somebody would find out who she really was, where she had come from. I mean, that's kind of a scary thing to go through most of your life, always looking over your shoulder, worried about, you know, are the Nazis going to come get me? Are they going to find out that my birth date isn't what it really is? I mean, that's kind of a strange place for someone to be in. I mean, you're in a different country, first of all. You're trying to find your way. You're learning these languages to fit in. And then you're always looking over your shoulder, wondering if the shoe's going to drop. Yes. Um, and it reminds me of a story I often tell when I'm speaking. And um, it's, it's somewhat funny, but it, it has obviously a, a much deeper um, undertone. So... That is exactly what happened with my grandmother. Um, with the third pogrom that occurred in her hometown, she had to assume the identity of another woman. What happened was um, this candle maker, you know, the professions that were so important yes. back then. It's, it's almost funny to hear myself say it, but this candle maker that knew my grandmother's father and, and really liked him a lot and respected him, he knew of this other man named Mr. Hirshhorn. Um, Mr. Hershorn and his wife, Mrs. Hershorn, they all lived um, close to each other. And they had a piece of paper that had their name on it and their date of birth. And they had to have this piece of paper with them in order to leave the ghetto or leave where they were and come back. And if you were asked for that piece of paper and you didn't have it, you were shot dead right on the spot. It was that important. And in my book, I even say paper equals life. That, that The paper meant your life. And um, very sadly, Mrs. Hirshhorn left the ghetto and didn't have her piece of paper, and she was killed. So the candle maker knew that there was this piece of paper there that n nobody was using, and my grandmother was in hiding because she didn't have a piece of paper. She didn't have a skill or a profession that was deemed worthy enough to the Nazis. And so he spoke to Mr. Hirshhorn, and he allowed my grandmother to take this piece of paper. Now, Mrs. Hirshhorn was born in 1906. My grandmother was born in 1922. When you're an, a young adult, that's a big age range in mm -hmm. terms of how you would be expected to look. And so they very, very carefully, and the, pa the piece of paper is actually not in my book because it wouldn't print well, but I have a copy of a copy of a copy and probably then some. Um, and I think the actual paper is at the U.S. Um, Holocaust Museum in D.C., but they very, very carefully made the zero from the 1906 to a one because 1916 is closer to 1922. And Mrs. Hirshhorn's birthday was, uh, I think it was uh, March 5th, I want to say. My, my grandmother's was December 26th. And so my grandmother used that birthday for her entire life. And the part that's funny that I was getting to is um, as my Towards the end of her life, the last five, ten years, and as my kids were getting older, we would always go visit her on her birthday, and we'd always bring a big bundle of sunflowers because they reminded her of the wild sunflowers that grew in her hometown. And they would come, you know, yelling down the hallway of her assisted living facility or her apartment. Um, they called her B-Bubby. She wanted to be, she figured she'd be like Grand Bubby. It's like G-Bubby, but somehow my kids thought B-Bubby fit or they misheard it or I don't know, but that's what, you know, stuck. So they're yelling, "Be Bubby, Be Bubby, happy birthday!" And you know she's standing outside her door, shushing them because nobody at the facility believes her birthday to be in December. 
And so, you know, of course, my kids were like, all right, we'll be quiet. Like, they just figured they were being too loud as children. Um, now they understand the seriousness of it. But also, on the flip side, we would go visit her in March, let's say, and we'd get in the elevator, and there would be the flyer on the, the inside wall, you know, happy birthday to our fellow March residents. And there was Manya Luchtenstein's name, you know, listed on there as a March birthday. Of course, that wasn't her birthday, but she did, to your point, Robin, she, she did go through life worrying that there was a Nazi lurking somewhere. And I can't, I was just quickly flipping through my book when you were speaking. When I wrote the earlier version of this book and she was alive, she would not allow me to put her birthday in the book. And then after she passed and, and this book was published, I think I included it, but I, I can't remember where it would be. I know it'd be towards the front, but I, I can't, or towards the beginning, but I can't find it. But it's, it is really something. And, um, you know, there, there have been times in my life where I've been a victim of certain crimes, and thankfully it, it hasn't followed me for years and decades, um, you know, where you, you tend to look over your shoulder and you wonder if, if someone's there, um, just making sure that you're, you're safe in your, in your body and yourself and your person. Um, but this was 90, well, I, I'm not, I won't try to do math. <laughs> real quick, but 94 minus 17-ish, I mean, that many years, right, of um, always worrying. But I think that's part of the intense trauma of this type of victim. So, you know, trauma is a big topic on this show, and it mm-hmm. sounds to me like part of what you're telling me is she never completely got over the trauma. But do you think she compartmentalized it, or how do you think she dealt with the trauma that came out of her experience later in life. So to your first point, yes, Holocaust survivors didn't have counseling and therapy and, you know, things that we're, they're like luxury items, right? I mean, if we need to see somebody to talk to somebody, our, our health insurance covers it, we have a copay, it's, it's doable, it's, it's accessible. They, they did not. So it's a lot of PTSD and a lot of trauma, which... Um, made it very difficult to talk to her the, uh, and to get, flesh out these, these facts and these stories because I knew she would have sleepless nights for, for weeks on end. Um, how did she deal with it? Did she compartmentalize it? I think so. I, I didn't ask her that question, but there's a um, beautiful story she wrote that I'm sure I included, um, and it has to do with um, the day that she came to my bridal shower or I think it was bridal shower or baby shower, I don't remember. They're kind of running together right now. But um, she wrote a beautiful piece afterwards um, talking about seeing me with all of my friends and, you know, all this happy time and the upcoming wedding. So it must have been bridal shower. And, um, and it reminded her of her wedding day because um, it was very small. I actually don't think it was legal. They grabbed someone who maybe was a rabbi or something and married them. And um, they had um, my grandfather's brother, her brother-in-law there, and one other couple as witnesses. You know, they barely knew. She borrowed someone's dress, and they found a bottle of vodka or something to celebrate. But some, uh, I forget who they were exactly. I don't want to say the wrong, you know, the wrong ethnicity or um, citizenship, but a group of Nazi-like people, or maybe they were Nazis at the time, they, they heard about there their being a bride, and um, they went looking for her, and she spent her wedding night hiding in a, in a back room, like in a locked room, so they, they couldn't 
find her. And they, the, the other people there were able to give these men the, the bottle of vodka to try to appease them, and they finally left. So back to your question, she did talk about really enjoying her time at my bridal shower, you know, really sort of watching the interplay with me and my friends and family members and all of that. So I think she was able to be present in that moment and put her own um, trauma and tragedy and that whole thought process behind to the side, but then later come home and sort of work through it. And I think the writing, thank God for her writing, yeah. right? Because that was really what the reason I had, that was the actual original reason I wrote the book was just to put her writings together because there were so many beautiful pieces and I didn't want them to get lost. And then I ended up wanting to fill in the blanks between the writings. How did one lead to another? But because of her ability to do that and be present in the moment, but then later write, I think that's how she, she dealt with um, happy times because she was happy. When my, the, my twins were born, my son was the first boy ever. She came from a family of you know, three girls. She then had two daughters. My mom had three girls, and my aunt had two daughters. I mean, it was just a lot of females in our family. And um, when my son was born, it, she was 100% like beyond ecstatic. I'll get very teary-eyed just thinking about how emotional she was, um, you know, just the whole idea of the family growing. Her, her being a sole survivor, and now there's families growing and growing. Um, but then also the very... Um, you know, funny questions like, how, how do you change the diaper on a boy? You know, because these are things we just did not know. Yeah. Um, but she was very present. So I, I think, yes, I think that's how she had to deal with this. Because if you can't compartmentalize, then I don't think you can really be present. And then I think you really don't go through life appreciating what you're able to um, appreciate at that time, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably cathartic for her in the end, not only um, to see you blossom into who you became, and and but also to share those those stories and to because you know Robin and I have both written books and can speak to the cathartic effect of of writing the book. And to that end, I guess what comes to mind is was writing this book cathartic for you? I think at times. Um, I really saw it more of a more as a mission or a duty, wanting to make sure it was done and it was done correctly and factually accurate. So it was a labor of love most of the time. But I also felt like during the writing process, I very much felt so much closer to her. And when I was rewriting the the original manuscript, putting it together for my book, she had passed away so it was cathartic in the sense that i felt this really strong connection to her um i was learning details or really understanding them better um the historical facts and all of that that's in this book was not in my first book so i was really understanding even history better and what was going on at the time um but it also became extremely frustrating because it led to a lot of questions that i could no longer ask because she was she wasn't alive anymore so um so there were times that it was cathartic and there were times that it was um you know very much fr very frustrating 
So what were the conversations like when you first started working on this with her and talking to her? What were those conversations like? Because some of us have never been in that position to not only be personally affected, but have someone in our family that could share those things with us. What, what were those conversations like? Well, typically I would go to her apartment with my laptop and um, some printouts or um, something. And I would try to uh, figure out ahead of time what I wanted to talk about. I would see how much time I had. She usually had a lot of time and she was happy to talk about it, but I also didn't want to sort of twofold. I, I didn't want to talk about too much where I felt like it would just be very, very difficult for her. But then I also didn't want to talk about too little because I knew she was going to suffer and have nightmares. So you try to find that, that happy balance. The conversations were really, I tried to make them very pointed. I, I don't know if that's just because I'm, I'm a prosecutor by trade. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, try to stay I'll, focused. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess yes on that one. That's a great know, skill Knowing you, I'm going to guess yes. Um, right? You have like the section of the background. Yes. And, right. So, yes. Um, so I would try to, you know, folk hone in on, on certain areas. But I also wanted to really get out more than what they were able to get out when they interviewed her for the Shoah Foundation, Steven Spielberg's project. I, I knew, was very familiar with her tapes and what she said. But I really wanted to get out more of the emotion. So, um, you know, one night I, I came over there and I wanted to ask her about something I forget now. And we ended up having such a long conversation about sunflowers and just how, why they were so important and the, the cherry trees that her father, you know, took care of and things like that. Um, but conversations were, I had a lot of questions because that's what I do is I ask a lot of questions. Um, but leaving room for her to explain things. But it never went like that, ever. Because with my grandmother, um, and again, maybe I didn't ask good questions. Um, maybe I, I need some more basic training on that. But you would ask one question, and it would lead to an answer over here, and an answer over here, and another answer over here. And you know, then you're like trying to get all of this figured out, and how did one lead to the other? And, and then you've got 20 more questions, but then it also led to a different area, so you're trying to get that figured out. And you realize when you, most of the time I'd realize when I would leave, we've talked about three different things that I didn't even know were on the plate, and I didn't get to the stuff I wanted to flesh out with her. Um, so it, it was not easy at all. Things did not follow a, a typical um, flow pattern that I'm very used to um, as a lawyer. Um, it, it, things were really all over the place, and I've really come to just understand and appreciate that the Holocaust was not an easy story to tell. There were so many intricate factors and things happening at once. Um, and my grandmother did not ever want me, I, I believe, I, my grandmother did not want me to think there was just one simple answer to her question. She wanted me to leave understanding the full story, having a full understanding of what she went through and her family and her friends. and people in her town and so forth um, so that so that I was able to explain it correctly to the future generations and so forth so it was um, it, it was not easy and it was not simple but I bet you it was worth it hundred percent I wish she was here so we could go back and I could ask her the 10 or so more questions that I now have that would of course would lead to 10 or 20 more questions after yeah that. So she apparently read your first draft, right? I, I think she read, I, I'm not sure how much she read of it. 
because it, she got it one month before she passed away. Um, I know she looked at it. The cover had sunflowers all over it, and I know that that just made her cry. You know, as soon as she saw it, I, I left her a copy, and she um, we actually she did not read most of it because she was very blind at that point. I know that I read portions to her. And I know my kids did and possibly some other family members. So I don't know how much of it was read to her, and, um, but I'm just not sure. But we talked about it a lot. She knew everything that was going in there. She gave me her blessing, of course, with the exception of her birthday. Wow. Well, Adina, I'd, I guess I want to get two things before we end today. You know, you know I'm, I'm going to ask you at the end to, to read a poem from the book. But, but before we wrap up, I want to give you the opportunity because there probably are people out there now maybe who have uh, teenagers who are going through bullying, that sort of thing. Parents, as a parent, you know, what advice would you give parents as teenagers are being bullied by their sexual orientation, that sort of thing? What sort of, because Robin asked about those conversations, and this is a little bit different because it's trauma in the past, this, the conversations mm-hmm. you had with, with Bubby, but talk to me a little bit about that in terms of what advice you would give to, to parents and connecting with their kids who might be living in fear based on something that, that is part of their world? Well, I don't know if I'm really in a position to do that. I would hate to give advice where I don't feel um, really comfortable in my experience. I could just talk about, as a parent, what sure. I do. Um, and I think for me, and I don't, I'm not saying this is right for everybody, I'm very involved with my kids. Um, I'm, I, I hate to call myself a helicopter parent because I'm, I, I'm trying not to be that way, and they're getting older, so I'm trying to back off. But um, I'm very involved. I try to be very aware of who they're with, what they're doing, um, even when they were younger. And we would always invite the kids over to our house, and our house would always be the place where the kids would come after school or on the weekends primarily so I can keep an eye on things, so I could listen to conversations. I wanted to know what my kids were doing, and I'm sure they've done and they're doing, and they will do things that I'm not aware of. But the idea for me has always just about, been about open communication. I've told them many, many times, if something happens and you are scared to tell me, do not be scared to tell me. We'll have a conversation about it. You will not be in trouble unless there's something that I, I don't know about that yeah. we need to discuss and there needs to be a consequence. But, um, but uh, you know, I am, I'd like to think I am, you know, one of their number one fans, you know, along with their father and, you know, other close family members. But the idea being that it's a safe place to come and talk to me. And even for their friends, I've, I've all three of my kids have had friends that have gone through the transgender and so forth. And as a teenager, it's very, very difficult. Right. And, you know, the whole idea about being accepting and, you know, you're not living in their shoes, so you don't see the world through their eyes. So you try to have some empathy, which is different from sympathy and, right. and really be a good friend. But as a parent, um, you know, the, if, whenever I'm asked about advice, which I always feel, you know, weird about giving it's really about just being um, open to your, to your child, um, connecting with them, communicating with them, um, trying to remember that we were teenagers too, and, or you know, whatever age it was, and what did we do, and what did we get away with, and which, you know, what yeah. should we have not gotten away with, um, because you know, kids are kids, but I, I want them to always know that it's a safe place with me, um, so they can always come and speak to me. And 
I think based on some of the conversations that we've had that they have done so. Well, you know, I don't think there's in any way that you should belittle the advice you just gave or, 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 or you know, because, you know, one of the things we don't do, whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our, our partners, sometimes even um, coworkers, everything else, we barely take the time to have real conversations. We say good morning, we say how you doing, and we probably really don't care about the answer, right? And I think what you're speaking to is is the chance to have these real conversations with people, whether they're those people are your children, or whether they're your children's friends, or whether they're your coworkers and that kind of stuff, because we tend to forget that each and every person we deal with has a story, has their baggage, has their pain that they're bringing to whatever experience it is, whether it's the morning commute or whether it's in the office, that sort of thing. And so I appreciate what you said so much because we talk about open open communication and, you know, it's easy to disconnect from each other in this world, right? It's easy to separate ourselves, to use different things to separate ourselves, whether it's gender, color, religion, that sort of thing. And to me, those are all just illusions, right? They're just kind of man-made creations that we have decided we're going to use to say that one person is better than the other, whether, whether that's related to somebody's religion, like as you shared in, in, in your great book, or in, in any other instance in this world, you know, with the kind of clothes we wear, shoes we wear. So I think the advice is great because I think if we start, to me, if we start looking at each other's souls instead of at each other's humanity or human shell and what that brings to the world that we're going to be so better off and i'm i'm just so appreciated that you gave us and gave the world a chance to see your grandmother's soul thank you yeah i would agree i am grateful that i got to read about bubby and i'm anxious to finish the rest of the book because some of the things that she writes wow they just really resonate very powerful gave me chills right off the bat first chapter just amazing. A great honor for your grandma. Thank you, Robin. She was a much better writer than I am, but I'm still, I'm still working on it. Well, I might argue that point, but, you know, Adina, if you would uh, do us the honor of reading one of the, the poems that I think um, touched both Robin and I when we read your book and just as a way to closing the show. And, and thank you so much again for uh, spending the time with us and, and most importantly uh, allowing us this glimpse and putting this this book out into the world so thank you so much well thank you so much for having me so this is my grandmother's poem titled the silence I hear I hear you well my dear ones through the utter silence from afar past miles of ocean well hidden forgotten by the world by now once only I saw that place of horror adorned on one side with lush pine forests on the other a vast, endless field, where all you silenced forever now rest. Two mass graves hiding 25,000, Jewish corpses of young and old, could it be a silence that resonates or cries of anguish I hear? At least by now you suffer no more. The dark, bloody days are gone. I'll remember forever your moans and tears, and the eternal silence I'll hear. The horrid site in a remote corner in Poland is called Piotrny. The year was 1942. 
written by my grandmother, Manya Lichtenstein, in September 2002. Wow. Guys, as always, thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.